Um dia de sol Eu fui pra trabalhar Beautiful souls, I'm Camille. And this is Erica of the Healthcare from the Soul, the Healer's Journey podcast. Where we listen to stories from heart-centered healthcare providers who are rewriting their story as healers of this world. Now more than ever, they feel dissonance within themselves and the system and are answering their soul's calling for something more. Erica and Camille host retreats around the globe for healthcare professionals interested in discovering more about their life's purpose in the healing arts. To learn more, head on over to the show notes. Let's go to the show. Hi, Penny. So nice to have you on the Healer's Journey podcast with Erica and myself, Camille. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you inviting me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. So the reason that we call this the Healer's Journey or Healthcare from the Soul, the Healer's Journey, is because we feel like there is a a journey that we go on as healers, that we go into the healthcare field, and then we decide to go on this hero's journey where we go away and we have the initiation and then we have the return, right? And during the initiation and the return, we are tapping into what is has always been within us. And then we come out the other side and then hopefully this podcast and these conversations will allow us to share not only the healer's journey, but the return and how, um, how essential it is to heal oneself before we can go back into the world of the healing arts in a different way or a new way, um, a way that is more fulfilling. And so I feel like you are a paragon of that on your journey um, from nurse anesthetist to where you are now. So can you tell us and tell the audience a little bit about your healer's journey? Oh, wow. Um, You know, it's interesting because recently I just forced myself to sit and reflect on how much change has taken place in my life the last couple of years. Um, Monday, two days ago was actually the second anniversary of me walking away from healthcare. Um, So pretty much um, my healer's journey is that, you know, I, I went into nursing for financial independence and that in and of itself was a healing step for something else in my life. And when I got into nursing, I fell in love with taking care of other people, I truly had no idea what I was getting into. And I I loved nursing, but I had always been interested in anesthesia. And and when the time came, that was the natural next step. And through that process, I became curious about hypnosis. I won't say interested in being a hypnotist because that wasn't there until, um, you know, I actually took a course out of curiosity, which is kind of its whole story in and of itself as to how that relates to healthcare. But um, there began to be a lot of incongruencies between my values, healthcare's values, 
that revealed things inside of me that I needed to take care of. And along the way, as I reopened my second hypnosis practice, I began to really dig deep and heal myself. And that healing of myself is what has allowed me to be so successful as I've stepped outside of healthcare. So I've just tried to keep it short there because there are a lot of rabbit holes so how we long, could go down. How long were you a nurse and then into anesthesia? I took my first job as a student nursing assistant in December of 92, graduated nursing school in 94, and became certified as an anesthetist in October 2005. Okay, so wow. A quarter of a century, half my (laughs) life was in healthcare. (laughs) And And at what period of time did you... Um, did you get your, go into the study of hypnosis? Well, I first got interested in 08. I I came across some research that piqued my curiosity. I had um, patients who would come into the OR that went through the Chi Center at the hospital I worked at. They had a center for healthcare integration. Mm -hmm. So for patients interested in healing touch, Peggy Huddleston's Prepare for Surgery, Heal Faster, or Reiki, they could be supported in that pre-op. And I noticed these people took less medications. They woke up more quickly. They got out of PACU faster. And when I say faster, I don't necessarily mean hours faster, but even 15 minutes is a huge cost savings and a time savings from a healthcare perspective. And as I put together a CE course for nurses on acute pain management in the hospital, I was looking at complementary ways of addressing pain in our patients. And I came across the body of research on hypnosis. And hypnosis has been used for everything from pre-op as guided visualization to just kind of decrease pain and decrease nausea vomiting, to in France, they recently published where they did an awake craniotomy using hypnosis and low dose narcotic. So hypnosis is potent. And that curiosity, it took me three, four years, I wanted to find someone to train with that had a healthcare background, or a science related background. Uh, Not that other trainers are less qualified. I just wanted that perspective. Mm. And so I guess it was 2013, I trained to get the CE credits and I left ready to open a hypnosis practice. (laughs) Yeah. How did it change your practice? So my first hypnosis instructor was Ron Esslinger, retired captain of the Navy, nurse anesthetist. And In the NGH, we lovingly call him the king of pain. And one of the hypnotic phenomenon that exists is called glove analgesia. And that's where through the process of suggestion, you can numb a body part. Uh, People who have needle phobias who go to dentists will often seek out a hypnotist to learn how to numb their jaw so that they can have fillings and root canals done without local anesthetic. So he did a demonstration in class and the moment he called me up, I knew what he was going to do because I knew what we had talked about and I'd seen the video on his website. 
So I immediately had to put out of my mind what we were going to be doing and just focus solely on what he was saying to me rather than thinking about it, because that would keep me from going into uh, deeper levels of hypnosis. And he induced hypnosis. He deepened me. He gave me suggestions and to numb the back of my hand and for healthcare providers who are listening, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He took an Alice clamp and he snapped it shut on the back of my hand. And I was aware he was touching me and I heard the snap, but I felt nothing. And the mark was on the back of my hand for two and a half to three hours after he took it off. So that, that right there, I was like, pardon me, holy crap. (laughs) If our mind can keep us from feeling that, like what else is, what else is possible? Wow. That's so beautiful. And how did patients receive it when you started practicing on them? So I didn't do that outright with patients. What I would do is um, for patients that I felt would be open to it in the pre-op area, I would walk them through using the relaxing breath, which is uh, basically a way to increase vagal tone, but it also increases endorphins. And I would walk them through a guided visualization that would kind of allow them to check out. And then as they were going to sleep and as they were waking up, I would whisper in their ear because we're highly suggestible in that time. And one of my pet peeves in the OR would be the conversations that would take place as the patient went to sleep. And as they woke up, they might not remember, but their brain processes that information. And if the conversation is about the patient and it's not positive, it can impact them. Mm. Yeah. And did you have those discussions with the surgeon and other people in the OR and how did they, how receptive were they? Well, you know how they say you pick your battles. So for the people that I knew would be receptive, I often talked about what I did and that would get the curiosity going and then I could drop the nuggets for the ones who weren't receptive, I could just drop the nuggets of how what they say was so powerful. But I think healthcare is so ingrained, like within the informed consent process, so much emphasis has to be placed on the potential negative outcomes that sometimes people don't hear the rest. It just depends on where where their attention is. But often they would hear me. Some of them would kind of smirk and giggle or laugh or whatever, they would hear me as I was waking the patient up. I would have my face down under the bear hugger blanket whispering in the patient's ear, you're going to wake up, you're going to be so much more comfortable than you ever imagined. Like, you're going to be so comfortable, you're going to surprise even yourself. And your stomach's going to feel so pleasant. Now, if you had a patient who absolutely knew they were going to be in excruciating pain, no matter what, then they've like already decided it's that nocebo effect they've decided. It's so it doesn't have that much of, of, of an impact, but um, just as a funny aside, I had someone once who the pre-op nurses were like, Oh my gosh, this is just a terror. They're, they're, they're so rude. They're being mean to people. They're snapping to people. And, you know, it was for a very short sedation procedure 
So it was an upper endoscopy. So as we're doing the upper endoscopy, I'm the type of person I never took my hands off the patient in an upper endoscopy because they're working aside the airway, not inside, but aside of it. So the whole time while I was holding her airway, I was whispering in her ear, you're going to wake up feeling so pleasant and relaxed. You're going to be so calm. You're going to be so grateful for everybody who's taking care of you today. You're going to feel so good. You're going to be excited to get out of here, go get something to eat. And when she woke up, she was a pussycat. And everybody was like, oh my God, what did you do to her? Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor is like, I wish you would, can I pay you to come to my house and whisper those things in my ear? <laughs> No, you're like, yes, yes, you can. That is, that is so interesting. Um, Did you find that your patients then had better outcomes with their pain control after surgery? Certainly that's like comparing apples to oranges because every provider um, has their own way of assessing and titrating in an adequate amount of analgesia at the end of a surgery. And every surgery is a little bit different. Um, But I noticed that in my case, from patient to patient, the people that I did this with, they woke up more calm, more relaxed and more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they woke up more comfortable is when they started coming out of anesthesia, I avoided the word pain. I would ask them, are you comfortable? And I I think that's key because we look for what we expect. And if we look hard enough, we're going to find what we expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you said in your pre-interview, you said that we have a pain epidemic in this country and that it can, one of the ways it can be targeted is through the mind. Is that right? Absolutely. So pain is multifactorial. So obviously, say, for example, uh, you have a cut, there are the, the receptors, the nerve endings in the skin that send the signal up the spinal cord, but that's not the only thing that influences pain. Um, where our conscious attention is placed, our memories our current emotional state, all of those things feed into the actual perception of pain because the signal comes up to the brain and it's not immediately perceived. And I mean, we're talking hundreds and thousands of a second here. It's not immediately perceived. All of this other stuff goes into it. And um, if we're having a bad day, if we've had a prior bad experience and we expect something to be painful, then that's like turning up the volume on pain perception. However, if we're focused, if we're calm, if we're like, oh yeah, you know, I I cut myself, big deal. Like if we don't freak out when we see blood or something like that, then our perception is gonna be much lower. And, when it comes to cognition and pain, consider a time when you were maybe outside, you were hiking or you enjoy gardening or, you know, you were doing something that was enjoyable and you're really involved in what you're doing. And say you bump or you scrape yourself or you get cut and you don't realize it until later and you notice that there's some dried blood on your leg. Mm 
the reason you didn't perceive that is because your conscious awareness was somewhere else. And in the totality of everything that was happening, your mind was like, oh, this isn't life or death. And you just simply didn't perceive it. You simply chose not to perceive it. Now, I'll give you another example. And, and some people might say, oh, well, that's that's crazy. But um, it's absolutely not true. This has happened twice in my life. And the most recent time is the one I'll tell you about because it makes more sense. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you banged your pinky toe into something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So last year, my husband and I had gone camping. And I had this huge tackle box that I would keep first aid supplies in because he's allergic to yellow jackets. We're out in the woods. We're half an hour from the highway, never mind the hospital. And so I just always kept saline, wash and gauze and stuff like that. Well, it's in a heavy, hard plastic tackle box. And when we had unpacked, he had just set it down at the end of the couch. Well, in the middle of the night, I get up to go get a drink of water. And it was sticking out from the edge of the couch and I didn't turn the light on. I didn't think about it. And I walked into the sharp edge of that tackle box with the full force of my pinky toe on my right foot. It took my breath away. And I just immediately grabbed my foot and I was like, stop it, stop it. And I went into the bathroom. I kind of caught my breath. It stopped hurting and I looked down and I literally split the end of my pinky toe and my nail bed. So I wrapped it with band-aids so that it, it wouldn't bleed, but it had stopped bleeding. It took about eight weeks for it to heal, but it never hurt again. Even when I put my shoe on, like I could tell it needed to heal, but it was not painful. Wow. So if we catch ourselves, we can actually stop it. The power mm -hmm. of suggestion, the power of intention. I think that yeah. can be extrapolated to everything, right? Like, yeah. All and <laughs> yeah. And belief is huge. Yeah. Belief is huge. And one thing where, I mean, I know that doctors understand that they have authority. Nurses understand that they're in a position of authority with patients. But we need to take that understanding to the next level. That authority makes your patients suggestible. Mm -hmm. Your authority, whoever's listening, makes your patient suggestible. I don't care if you're a respiratory therapist, you're a physical therapist, you're a pharmacist, a doctor, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant. Your words are powerful. Mm -hmm. Amen, sister. Yeah. I can't say it enough. Let me say no, it one more time. Yeah. <laughs> the intention part. It's so, it's so strong. It's, it's, yeah. It's almost everything. And because they trust you too, right? Like healers right. are trusted people in our society. Right. Trust and authority mm -hmm. um, really is one of the things that, that fuels the placebo effect. It, it's an important piece of it. And um yeah, I think a lot of people have different opinions about the placebo effect. I don't know if I could very accurately explain mine uh, from a scientific point of view, except to say that if we're receiving news that concerns us, our worry creates stress and that inhibits our body's ability to heal. 
Whereas if we have that more positive outlook, we're creating a brain state and a physiological chemical state that facilitates healing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. When, um, when kids would come into the clinic with a laceration, I would speak with the parent within the child and say my name and then said, okay, now it's time for you to focus on healing while I get this and that and the other together. Now it's interesting because it works less on my children <laughs> when I say if they've injured their finger and I say, let's focus on something else or your toe, they're like, no, move the finger. <laughs> yeah. Well, the most powerful placebo is a mother's kiss mm. on a boo-boo. Mm. Yeah. It is. And they know it so innately. Yep. Yeah. You know? It's the love, care, and concern. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they do know it innately. That's the first thing they say. Kiss yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yep. why? So you said that you left healthcare a couple of years ago. What was the impetus? What made you decide that um, this incongruence that you spoke of earlier? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was inevitable that healthcare began to be run like a business, right? Um, hospitals don't survive if they're not in the black for very long. So I, I totally get that. And I really came to terms with the fact that what I consider my responsibility to patients may not be what other people consider their responsibility to patients. Um, what I found when I began to practice hypnosis part-time was that I had the freedom to help people based on my values to the best of my ability. And that I was somewhat constricted in healthcare. Um, In 2015, I moved. So I closed my hypnosis practice in Connecticut, came to Mississippi, and it was about three years later before I reopened. But the healthcare environment in Mississippi is very different. Access to care is very limited. And one of the first hospitals I worked at here was a for-profit independently owned hospital. And I began to feel very unsupported in that I didn't always have what I needed to provide the best care. I wasn't giving an adequate care, but when you know you're capable of doing so much better for a patient and you can't, um, within reason, that becomes one thing. And then I, I transferred to a larger hospital. So I would have a trauma center. So I'd have a schedule that supported me reopening a hypnosis practice because I loved doing call and I loved doing OB, but I knew that it was getting time for me to move out of healthcare because I really wanted to practice my hypnosis. And I really found myself in a situation where Um, I was working with people that literally, not all of them, but enough of them that like literally it was just a job. There's this perception that people didn't care about their own health. And I mean, I think that's always true for a certain percentage of the population, but to assume that to be the case for everyone and just not even attempting to invest the time to help someone to take power back over their health really bothered me. Um, And there would be times where we would run out of 
what I would in the OR, I would consider critical supplies because it's the end of the quarter. It's time to do inventory and they wouldn't allow the techs to order resupplies because they didn't want to have to pay people to count all the supplies. So you could be a week before the month's out and you're running out of certain critical things that facilitate taking care of trauma patients. And that just was really day in and day out was pushing me over the edge. In addition, I mentioned I had things within myself I needed to heal. So the two of those things came together. I, I didn't have the capacity to put it in its box where it needed to be. So I could just do my best. I always did my best, but I let those things really bother me because I had things going on in my life that really shortened or narrowed my bandwidth. Mm. Um, and right now with what's going on in the healthcare community, uh, at large between the pandemic and, and the way that staffing is going in, in these types of things. I, I recognize that what I experienced was just a fraction of what our providers are experiencing today. So I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people who have chose to stick it out. It's interesting about this, um, this when you mentioned the word incongruence, and I love that word incongruence, and then you mentioned values. So it was more of this incongruence with your values that led you to feel like you needed to leave healthcare. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, because my value is I have a responsibility to do and to give my best. And when, for example, you know that to provide the safest and the best care to a patient is to be able to put in an arterial line, but there are no arterial line sets in the OR to put a line in a patient because you're three days short of inventory count before they can reorder. I mean, what is our priority here? That is not a patient-based priority. That's a payroll-based priority. That was a large part of the incongruence um, is, you know, being able to do my best for people. And when the inability to do my best made me feel like I was uh, putting my patient at risk, then that bothered me. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you can take a blood pressure with a blood pressure cuff, but we all know that when you're having extreme swings in blood pressure, it's not as accurate as would be optimum. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so yeah. with the incongruence with the values within the system, did you also know that, notice that there was some incongruence with your values and the way that you were able to, or that you delivered healthcare? Does that make I, sense? I just simply always did my best. And, you know, some days I would get frustrated with myself that I couldn't do my best, but, um, you know, that that created a lot of frustration in me when I couldn't. And to be able to put the patient first and to do my best, I, that was like the only way I could get in and get out. The last six months I was there, the way that I was able to show up at work every day was to have gratitude for the insurance that that job provided me. Yeah, I, I mean, really, um, because my husband's on a medication that would cost $7,000 a month without it. So my gratitude for my insurance got me in and out the door the last six months. Wow. 
So did you, as your bandwidth shortened, mm -hmm. did you, was there any fear around leaving? Like, did you know already that you were going to leave the system altogether? Um, or did you think, oh, I could just go to another position at another hospital that provides the same mm -hmm. That's a good question. I actually did locums at a hospital that's about 10 minutes from my house. And I did really bread and butter cases. But what had happened was that the longer, so let me just back up just a second. Um, in 2017 was when I really began the healing on myself and took care of the things that were creating a lot of frustration within me. Then I restarted my hypnosis practice and I began to notice and I did, I couldn't put my finger on it. It wasn't until I started a coaching program that I learned about values and subconscious values. And I could put my finger on what was happening with me. And so I would do my best to reframe and um, to get things in order. And my plan had always been to stay in anesthesia in some capacity and do hypnosis like part-time. And then like when I'm 60, retire. And what I found was even when I would go now to this locums where it was very bread and butter, small community, loved the people I worked with, there was so much drama because of the pressure there was so much pressure um, that I, I just, I'm like, you know what, I, I can't deal with this anymore because I have found my internal peace. Mm -hmm. And as much as I try to compartmentalize myself and simply be there for the patient, people are always trying to pull you in and suck you in. And it's like, you know what, I just don't have time for this anymore because I realized that I could support myself at the same level owning my business. And so then it was like, okay, we have to get out of here. Like, let's go, let's go. I've got insurance. I'm grateful for the insurance because I had to have gratitude for where I was okay. in order to grow beyond and get what I really wanted. So um, did that make sense? It did, yeah. it did. You had the momentum already there. Yeah. You, had, you knew that if you made a leap that you would be fine, um, which... I feel like a lot of people right now, especially after the last year and a half, feel like they want to make the leap, but they don't necessarily have the momentum um, to do so because they they don't know where they will go or they don't know where the income would come from. Right. And, you know, <laughs> It, it's a huge mindset leap to go from being an employee mm. and someone telling you what you need to do next to go into this place of, okay, this is where I need to go next. It, it takes a lot of self-trust and it wasn't all there in the beginning. I just knew that if I was consistent and I put one foot in front of the other, that it, it would happen. And you know, every six to nine months, I find myself up leveling more and it just pushes me to have more consistency, more trust and being in business for yourself. There are going to be some aspects of what you do that you're not going to like, 
that you either have to learn to love it or you become successful enough. You pay somebody else to do that part for you. <laughs> I love that. So you mentioned a couple of times about how your health um, and some things in your life needed to be resolved. Mm -hmm. uh, if you feel comfortable, do you mind sharing an aspect or a piece of that? And or or do you feel like once you were able to step away from healthcare, um, that you were able to then heal yourself, and or that you were surprised that you were able to heal yourself more quickly because your values maybe align once you stepped away? So um, I, I would like to share just a, a brief snapshot of what I had to heal within myself before. I actually reopened my practice because I have a feeling that I have more than a feeling. I know that someone is going to hear this that needs to hear it. Um, the reason why I moved was my father and his wife passed away within 11 months of one another and she passed before him and he had Alzheimer's and I was managing their care from 1300 miles away very long and involved story short, there was no time to grieve. I was trying to manage uh, people coming out of the woodwork, trying to tell me how to take care of things. I'm sure you could just use your imagination. You're in healthcare. We've all seen it at the bedside, what happens. So there was a lot of anger and I had no time to grieve because I was running a business. I was working, I was taking care of him. Well, what I did not recognize was that through running my business and then the move to Mississippi, I had managed to distract away from all of that. And I was gratitude bypassing. So in other words, when something would come up, I would say, you know what, I'm just grateful that I was able to take care of things. Or I'm grateful that something woke me up in the middle of the night and told me to call my dad the day before he died. So I was gratitude bypassing everything. I wasn't addressing my feelings. And what happened is, is this stuff continued to percolate underneath the surface. And it was coming through as anxiety, except I didn't recognize it as that. I was keeping myself busy. If I was awake 18 hours of the day, I was going for 18 hours of the day. And then when I went to work in the trauma center about six months later, I had a day where something simple happened and I just snapped. I blew up in anger. And I had to be at work for a three o'clock shift that day. It was the Tuesday. It was the Monday before Thanksgiving in 2017. And um, I allowed myself to express what I was feeling. I was trying to get it out. I took a nice hot shower. I would settle down a little bit. It would come up. And then when I began to drive into work, it was an hour and 20 minute drive as I'm driving in. I'm on a highway where I go 75 miles an hour. And I was hurting. I was in a lot of emotional pain. I couldn't put a, a name on it except for anger because it was just like oozing out of me and I couldn't stop it. And it hurts so bad. So I'm driving along the highway and I think to myself, you know what? If I just took my steering wheel and I swerved into the other lane, by the time the helicopter got here, I would miss my golden hour. And I was like, what are you saying to yourself? So now I start to get angry at myself. And so it began a spiral. 
I would begin to get a hold of myself. I would calm for a minute and then the thoughts would come back and the anger would increase and the pain. I mean, it felt like my chest was crushing. I tried to call some people that I could talk to and not upset them. Everybody was busy. My husband was at flu clinic. My two best friends weren't able to answer. When I pulled in the parking garage at the hospital, as I pulled in, I'm putting it in park and I'm trying to get my collective act together. The thought ran through my mind that if I went into the OR and I went to the D-Bold and I pulled out fentanyl and propofol, that I would be too far gone before anybody found me. And I'm about to cry because this is the lowest point of my life. And I recognize right then I have to have help right now. I cannot trust myself to go in and take care of a patient. So I, I went in, I went to the break room and um, my chief CRNA was in the room. I was supposed to go relieve her. And I knew I couldn't walk into that OR because I would fall apart. So I went into the break room, I shut the door and I called my nurse practitioner. And um, long story short, she happened to be a friend of my chief. Her team got her on the phone once they realized I was in crisis. My chief came to be with me, made sure I was off the schedule. And um, I elected to um, take a couple of days of respite to just completely unplug from everything and everyone. And I did a little bit of counseling, but in that two days, I recognized what I was dealing with was anger and grief. And I knew that hypnosis would help me. So I reached out to my mentor, got my doctor to approve it. I did sessions with him. I, I'm still seeing a counselor. And um, after just three sessions, my life did a complete 180. That was gone. But so that piece was out of the way. Um, the reason why I wanted to share that is because it is not shameful to ask for help. I did not realize where I was until that moment when everything kind of started to fall apart around me because I did such a good job of distracting it. But if you're hurting, ask for help. And that was the first part of my healing. And then the second part was just learning to slow down, have grace with myself, uh, to not feel like I have to do everything right now. And that's what's happened since I left the hospital is I've learned to honor my body, my time, my space, and I've built a business that supports that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Penny. Thank you, Penny. And one of um, the things that you've mentioned in our pre-interview as well was this idea behind the uh, professional's hidden addiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our hidden addiction is that we always have to be doing things. Yeah. That we, and, and I, I suffered from that, right? There's this feeling that we're not moving forward, that we're not doing enough. If we're not, you know, taking care of others, making sure everyone else's needs are met, um, there's always something else that needs to be done and that distracts us from what's important in life. So I, I was good at that in both places, right? Even before I had my crisis, that distraction, staying busy, that was my hidden addiction. And then I reached a point where that didn't work anymore. Yeah. 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 We use the mechanisms that we have, the tools that we have until they don't work anymore. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
And recognizing too, and I think this is really important when we're um, talking to healthcare professionals and we have this um, buzzword about burnout and about stress and, and, and people typically, healthcare professionals typically say, well, this is just the job, right? This, the job is, is um, high stress. This is the way I live. I'm a perfectionist. I'm a doer, exactly like you were saying, this hidden addiction. And I think this idea or the example that you gave where something simple happened and you snapped that that's a cue that something else is going on, that your emotions are trying to tell you something and a good opportunity to maybe then ask for help or to talk about it, not as this sense of a burnout or stress, but like my body isn't in congruence with my soul or values or. Yeah. And I mean, even the constantly need to be doing that need for perfectionism, that's actually the clue. What's causing me to feel like it needs to be perfect? What's causing me to feel like I can't just sit down and relax? What's keeping me from being comfortable sitting in my own thoughts? If you catch yourself in overdoing perfectionism, any of those things, I challenge you. I'm going to give you the easy way out. Sit for two hours in silence and notice what goes through your mind. If you're constantly thinking, I need to be doing, I need to be going, this has to be done. It's like, what, what's going on there that causes you to feel that way? And is it true? Yeah, I think I'm so grateful that you shared that, your story and the crisis, because we have, um, we have a physician suicide epidemic. We have a paramedic suicide epidemic. I believe we have an entire healthcare system suicide epidemic. Um, and those thoughts have crossed, like I worked in ER and urgent care before I became a PA. And a lot of burnout comes from those like super fast paced adrenaline rush um, humans which i used to be <laughs> and yeah. um yeah there's just there's so much to be learned from sharing your story and being brave enough to to ask for help and that's yeah that's what this whole podcast is yeah. about <laughs> yeah and and i never had an inkling of those thoughts before that moment so when, you know, when I hear people say, oh, it's selfish, it's this, it's that, I'm like, unless you've ever been in that pain, you don't know how long that, how strong that thought is. And I recognize, I maybe because I'm in healthcare, I don't know. I, I recognize that if I didn't get help, I was going to lose that battle. Mm. Yeah. So I, there's so much more for us on the other side right? There, there's so much more to, to healthcare and to healing. And, you know, we don't have to stay married to this notion that we have to be in an environment that doesn't support us to be able to help people. Mm, beautiful segue. Yeah. Tell us what <laughs> your little dream, medium dream, and big dream is in the sense and the way that you see healthcare of the future. And when I mention this, I really want to stretch us and really get 
big and remove the box altogether when we're looking at this. And I like to remind um, you that you don't have to be the one who does it either. <laughs> and you don't have to know the how either. You don't have yeah. Well, I don't know the how. Um, <laughs> tr trying to figure out the how is just like a broken strategy. Just like see what comes up, right? Yeah. Got to go with the flow. Um, my my little dream is that it becomes a part of nursing education of how powerful our words are. Um, uh, people are rushed at the bedside now. I would love to see that become a part of physician education, but you know, sometimes that, that's a very um, strong paradigm that would have to be shifted there just because of the way physician education takes place, but within nursing education, within education of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, we there, there's a huge way to go in and influence the way that we talk to people and, you know, the potential and the hope. Um, my my big dream is to really revolutionize this whole notion of it's in your head. I want it's in your head to be a positive thing. I want for people to realize that it's in your head. That means it's in your power to change it, to fix it, to shift it, to create an environment where your body can heal and actually have a vision um, within my own business where I am going to uh, capitalize on some of the key stakeholders in healthcare and use that as a Trojan horse to get people to realize what's possible um, with their mind, that what they, what they can influence. And as layers get added onto that, there will be empowerment around diet and health and in those kinds of things. But the first thing we have to get beyond um, is this, you know, uh, you know, people laugh it off, you know, that you can use your mind to change things. Um, I, I saw a lot of that when I, when I was walking away from healthcare and I want those people to be in the minority, not the majority. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's it, it needs to be where we put the person's belief that needs to be center stage in their healing, their belief in what's possible. Um, yeah, I, I would like to hear stories uh, like Mr. Wright to be commonplace. I don't know if you know about Mr. Wright, um, Lisa Rankin talks about him in her book. Uh, his case is written up in the Spontaneous Remission Project where he had stage four cancer. And he believed that if he got into this trial of this new chemo drug, he would be healed. And he didn't qualify, but his doctor told him he did and hung a bag of IV fluid, told him that that was the special chemo agent. And he didn't expect Mr. Wright to last the weekend. And when he came in Monday, Mr. Wright's up walking around, his tumors have shrunk and he's healing. And so there's more to the story. I, I recognize that we don't have time to really dig into that, but um, I mean, that's just amazing. And Lisa, that, that can happen. about the mind over medicine, 
Buck. Yes, yes, mind over medicine. And there are many principles that she talks about that influence our state of healing. But our mind and our belief is key in all of it. And when you're talking about the words and doing education and training on with nurses and doctors and the healthcare system, um, you don't necessarily mean hypnosis, right? Like just the power of our words as intentions as yes exactly so hypnosis is a state of mind you can be suggestible without being in a hypnotic state so um, to help people to recognize that their position of authority of authority um, causes their patients to be more suggestible to more readily accept what they're saying mm -hmm. okay yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a study done um, on paramedics and when paramedics arrive at a scene and they say, introduce themselves, um, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm a paramedic. Um, I am here to take you to where you need to go in order for diagnostics and things to be taken, you know, all the things to be taken care of. Right now, your whole job and mission is to start to heal they found that the patients had better outcomes than the paramedics who did not practice that suggestion. And um, that's where I learned about how to do it then with my patients is through that study. And it allows, again, like you were saying, Penny, this idea of your body healing itself, right? Is getting into that state of mind where we can recognize that our bodies are healing themselves all the time right now as you and I speak. Right. And they also can in trauma situations too. It's the way that we provide the authority, you know, as you see somebody walk up and then they also suggest that this is something that you can do as well. Because they're in pain, they're scared, right? And you calm their, them being um, their fear. Right. Allow them to do their job. Healing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, someone arriving and having those words of comfort, it's one, people feel like they can, they can kind of let go a little bit and trust someone to take, to take the reins and to take care of, to take care of things yeah. and to move forward uh, from there. And I love this idea of ultimately then, um, training or reminding um, patients or people that they can do this on their own without having that authority figure walking in, stepping in and, and yep. um, reminding them. Yeah, and just as an example of like the um, influence that a, a physician can have, you can, um, I, I could work with someone to help them stop smoking, right? And it could be like nine months, they're a non-smoker, they haven't even thought of a cigarette. And then they go to their doctor's visit and the doctor says, oh, are you still smoking? Oh no, I have not even interested in cigarettes. And the doctor will be, well, what did you do to quit? Like you smoked a pack a day for 40 years. And it's like, oh, I went to a hypnotist. And they're like, you know, that stuff doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then the next day they're out smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Yep. 
that's where it goes back to healing the healer, right? Mm -hmm. In order for us to let in more possibilities, we have to get out of our very rigid, very narrow mindset and really identify that there is a mind body spirit connection and that there is, you know, like subconscious beliefs can heal us or that whatever millions of different possibilities that we know of and modalities that we know of outside of the healthcare system conventionally um, is available. And that requires either a crisis or taking an intentional leave and discovering for yourself. Yep. So how does your life look after two years of being outside of of healthcare? How different does it look to you? And where are you on the other side of this? So today I basically get to set my schedule. I work between six and eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, If I want to get out early on Fridays, I can do that. Uh, If I want to take a long weekend, I can do that. I get to take, I just, today I went into my calendar and two days before Christmas, I blocked myself all the way off through New Year's. You never do that in healthcare. And I replaced my anesthesia income. Not only did I replace my anesthesia income, I get to choose my health insurance. I'm not held to the standard of what somebody else says that I need. Um, And I get to choose who I work with. Mm -hmm. I I think uh, most importantly, I get to work with people who are motivated for change. And um, the other thing is I'm, I'm in a unique position where I can work from anywhere. So if I wanted to pick up and fly out to Washington and see my children, I could take my laptop with me. I could take my stack of papers with me. And if I wanted to see clients while my kids were at work during the daytime so I could spend evenings with them, I can work from anywhere. What about the internal change? The internal change? I get to choose and that's empowering when you know that you get to choose then the only limit to what's possible for you is what you decide so the only limit to what's possible for me is the limits that I choose to put on on myself so it means I get to be curious with life I get to have fun with what I do. There are still things in business I may not like to do. Like this morning, I had a meeting with my accountant. Um, You know, it's uncomfortable to have somebody in your books. (laughs) But either way, um, you know, that's... um, I, I just really can't even think of the right word to explain it because... Once you recognize you have the ability to go out and create and to serve and that you can do it without somebody telling you what to do, things just shift. And July 31st, I allowed my 
nurse anesthesia certification to lapse. At the end of the year, my APRN license will fall away because I went in and removed all of my practice sites for my APRN license. So I'm officially no longer a certified registered nurse anesthetist. I'm just a retired nurse anesthetist. Congratulations. So, <laughs> wow. And are the logistics like choosing your own insurance or starting your own retirement plan? Um, are they easier than people think they are? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you you could totally get lost in the weeds. You just have to keep in mind that there are deadlines and there are rules, and and it pays to connect with someone. Like with retirement plans, like I would have thought that a certain type of plan would have been best for me. And they're like, no, 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 you can actually put away more money if you do this type of plan. So it pays to have. It pays to have a consultant. And I think that the other thing that's important, um, this is something that comes up a lot now with entrepreneurs. We talked about a lot in the mastermind is, you know, people talk about the two comma club and how much revenue you have. You don't have to make a million dollars a year to become a millionaire. It's how you take the money that you do make and you reinvest it and make it work for you. So... Okay, Penny, we just have a couple more questions for you. You okay with that? I'm good with that. Okay. Um, so interested to hear what you would tell somebody, a healthcare professional that is, isn't happy, right? Because we can all just gauge it. It's not about stress. It's not about burnout. It's not about any of these other words that could define it. It's really if you are unhappy in where you are, what would you tell them what would, you, what would you tell them? What words of wisdom would you tell them? Yeah, so I would say get in touch with what lights you up, uh, with what brings you joy, and to allow yourself to play with ideas of how you could take that and turn it into something that can support you. And I, I never dreamed mine would have been would have been hypnosis, but um, I know people who are quite successful artists. I actually uh, worked with a resident who was, I want to say he was in his second year of residency. His father is a very famous cardiologist who's probably written a book or two. And um, when I worked with him with patients, he was great. He was smart. He was really connected to people. But at the end of his second year, he was like, you know what, this, I'm not doing this for me. His love and his passion was carpentry. So he ended up partnering with someone and he built a kid's museum in the city where we were and everything that was in there, um, for the most part, to my understanding, was that he built it. And so it's just anything is possible. And when it comes to medicine, um, even nursing, I know some people, they go into that profession because their families are like, it's a reliable place to get your income. So people turn away from what they love and they enjoy because they've been told you can't make a living with that, or it's not a prestigious job, or you're not somebody unless you're a lawyer, a doctor or something like that. And that's just, 
that's just baloney. Follow your heart and do what you love because life is too short and you're not guaranteed your next breath. Mm, so true, Penny. You're not guaranteed your next breath. Yeah. Yep. So I live to do what I love. And that's what I would say. Live to do what you love. And you know what? If you think there are people around you who wouldn't support you, just you know, keep it to yourself until you're ready to make a decision and make a move. And you have to be in a place where you're not attached to what other people think about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Your happiness <laughs> has to be important. Yeah. The easy stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds easy. I've spent three years breaking 48 <laughs> years of habit of thinking it's important of what other people think, because that's what I was taught as a child. Oh my gosh, what will they think? Yes, yeah. yes, that's the work. When, when you're, um, you know, in your third, fourth, fifth decades of life and you make a change like this, that is the work, mm. is knowing you're worth it. Mm. Yeah, know you're worth it. Know you're worth it. And, and we're supposed to be happy in this world, right? I think that that's the other yeah. thing is that we feel like if we're happy, we're stealing that from somebody else. And it's not the case. It's not yeah. the case. That's a great point. There, there are a lot of people that that get concerned over that. Like, what if it upsets other people because I do this? Well, that's none of your business. That's their thing to fix. And it sounds selfish, but what's selfish about wanting to be happy? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the questions that... I have Camille. Where? Well, I want to actually know what kind of client do you work with now? I, I work with successful professionals or business owners, you know, so I, I work with people who've been in the work, they're doing the work, there's just kind of still there's there's something getting in their way, maybe they can't put their finger on it, but they're in momentum, they've been taking action. And they find that something's getting in their way, okay. right? So um, th- those are the people that that I work with at this point in time. And I mean, it could be a physician, it could be a C-suite executive, um, it could be one of you. I mean, I, I don't restrict myself to a specific profession. Okay. Nice. Um, so, do you work with people who are having um, medical issues? I used to. And now it's really more around confidence, motivation, which truly, even though many times we're in self-deception, we don't realize that a lot of that boils down to self-love, self-trust, mm-hmm. self-worth, those types of things. But, you know, occasionally I will take on someone dealing with a me- medical issue, but it's not often anymore. Usually it's somebody who's established or it's a referral from someone who's established with me, but I do train other people to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So you have a training program? Yes. Mm, yes. Four, four, four times a year. Great. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It sounds like something that 
any medical professional can use in their practice if they're continuing medicine or outside of their practice or on themselves. So what a great, what a great resource and what a great, um, uh, yeah, program sounds like you have for that. Yep. And I, I do pain management for hypnotists also. So for people who are already certified, I teach them how to take what they know, how to look at someone dealing with acute or chronic pain and to develop a plan to go in and address that. Ooh, that's wonderful. So ready to change world, baby. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> What do you see? What, what do you see as the healthcare of the future? Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> what I would like to see and how long it's going to take to get there uh, are, are two different things. But um, my hope is that with what the world is going through right now, that there is a dramatic shift in emphasis on self-responsibility for our health and for my goal is that people would recognize the link between, and I'm not vegan, I, I love my grass-fed beef and all the things, but the link between processed and their health, and, and that we have this shift to self-responsibility in the healthcare, and there are a lot of doctors and nurse practitioners and whatnot who already do this, it's just not the majority, where there is a partnership between patient and provider uh, in a way that supports the, the, the lifestyle changes and, and, and the self-responsibility. Um, I, I, I think that the business side of healthcare has caused things to move so quickly. Physicians are getting audited. How many minutes do you spend with a patient for this diagnosis versus that diagnosis, this type of an appointment versus that type of appointment? And they're being pushed to do more, more, more in less and less time. So then what is your reflex? I don't have time to teach the patient. Mm. You know, do you reflex is to a prescription? Right. A lot of times. Yeah, so that would be my so goal. Yeah, power to the patient. I don't know if we've ever given power back, power to a patient. So giving power to the patient and not in a sense of, uh, of scoring their experience, but more as an active participant and in partnership. Love that. Right. I personally, after you sharing the stories about yourself and having three sessions, and the quantum leaps that you've seen in people, um, I feel like if it's if the shift is coming, which it is, and we're able to inundate the healthcare system with the possibilities of changing drastically with just like words and intention and hypnotherapy, and I feel like it could be sooner rather than later, right? That's. That's my desire is that it's sooner rather than later, but you got to get, get the key stakeholders to change their own way of thinking. Which is what you're working on, right? Yeah. What I'm working on. Oh, I love that penny. Yeah. You know, I, I know I, I teased you with it being like only a couple more questions, but I'm, I'm curious on that. Just this one more. I'm just really curious about that. What, what do you, how do you see that happening where you're, changing this mindset and reframe for these 
executives uh, within healthcare. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't want to let my whole cat out of the bag here uh, because it's still in its incubation uh, stages. But um, initially, it would be it, it would involve some key stakeholders that would basically put the buffet before the patient, if you will, mm. and the patient can choose. Now there's gonna be an incentive to choose, right? But, you know, what I'm envisioning has the potential to save insurance companies billions of dollars. And I think that, you know, once these people have these experiences and they begin to talk to their physicians and say, this is what I'm doing, they can see that change. And it's a business to business component, but there's going to be a business to consumer component so that the people who already know their mind is important can can bypass within the within the key, the key stakeholders. But it's going to start out with my specialty, right? My knowledge of pain and surgery and how we can influence that whole experience. And then as that grows, I will bring in people from other specialties and we're going to layer onto that and just really lay out a buffet of self-empowerment to heal. That's cool. <laughs> okay, so that's where the juice is for, for Penny. Like that's where yeah. she really sees the future. You have a yeah. You, so where is that going to lead us? So if that, if, if that trickles down, we'll just use that word, yep. then where does that take us? Where I envision this is that inside of every hospital, next to every patient bed, that there is a tablet, if you will. So that if the doctor's like, you know what, I really want you to focus on this that they can get access to a program right on that tablet where they can begin immediately mm. to use their mind to heal. Mm. Beautiful. From, so from whatever it is. It's accessing that within the healthcare system. Um, right. I want it to be an integral part. Mm -hmm. So when, when the patient gets admitted to the hospital for surgery and they're checking off TED hose and turn cough, deep breathe, they're going to check off my post-op mindset program or whatever it may be. I don't know what it's going to look like yet. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to check these things off. And um, yeah. I'm telling you, Penny, if I was waiting, I had an appendectomy a few weeks ago. And while I was waiting for the room to be available, if they would have popped on some head a headset and I did it myself, but you know, with the Hertz and the, positive reinforcement that the surgery is going to go well and I'm going to heal. Like, can you imagine if everyone has it at their fingertips before they go into surgery and while they're in surgery, how that procedure will go? Um, yeah, I, I actually have a case study um, on that. And it, it ended with the manager of the local internal medicine clinic writing a letter to the CEO of the hospital. Uh, this was just before I left um, left Connecticut and um, someone with extreme post-op nausea vomiting, even from the mildest of sedation. And we did a four-hour anesthetic and 
20 minutes after I dropped her in recovery room, she was sitting up in the stretcher having ginger ale and looked like she had not even received anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And so she had a 23 hour admission for pain control because that was the type of procedure she had that people typically require so much medication that the insurance actually authorized to stay in the hospital 23 hours. She had one dose of two milligrams of morphine and that was it. Wow. So, you know. We're going to have a um, a, a pain medicine physician on the show at some point. And um, so I'm really interested and curious to see what, how she utilizes or knows about um, hypnosis and and treatment of pain. It sounds like it's important and an integral part. Should be. So simple. To put a tablet with a mindset program on the bedside of the patient to just plug in some earphones. Like it seems so simple and so monumentally cost-saving and just. (laughs) That is the rub because it's a cost outlay to start with, Mm. right? Right. And, And when it comes to these things, I mean, there are studies that demonstrate it, but to be able, you know, to, take that data and put it in front of a hospital CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> they should just move all of the intake tablets into the patient yeah. rooms that they should do. <laughs> it's there. They just have to, to move it around. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's a whole plan. Yeah. There's a whole plan. I mean, it, it might even involve, I know they're doing this on some burn units. It, it might even involve some virtual reality. I mean, you never know. Yeah, we'll see what it looks like. Well, Penny, you'll have to come on. Um, yeah, that's out of the bag, if you will, and share more about. Yeah. About your, um, yeah. About your... All right. Well, thank you so much, Penny. How can people find you? Oh, you can head over to pennychason.com, C-H-I-A-S-S-O-N, or just friend me on Facebook. Uh, at Penny Chase on. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram. So yeah. All the places. All the places. And we'll have it in the show notes too. All right, Penny, thank you so much. Thank you thank for you, having Penny. me. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy you're here. We look forward to bringing you more stories from the healer's journey on healthcare from the soul. If you've loved this podcast, please let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts to support us getting the word out. As our gift to you, we'll send you a meditation. Just screenshot your review and email us at healthcarefromthesoul at gmail.com. Thank you. And until next time, we're sending all our love.